Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the Bill Gantt College of Pharmacy, supporting sponsor of this OK So-So podcast. Today is October 24, 2019, and it's a beautiful fall day here in Mountain Home, Tennessee. And today uh, at Oncopharm, on the cutting edge of... Uh, the cutting edge, so to speak, uh, the cutting edge of what's coming out. I want to talk to you about two um, recent publications that are published online ahead of print, not yet even in print yet, uh, if people still read stuff in print. Um, so the first is something that you've heard about if you're a dedicated listener of this podcast, and if you are, thank you for your rates, your ratings, reviewing, and listening. Uh, it's the Adam VTE study. So this is a Pixban versus Delta pairing for cancer-associated VTE. Um, now, the primary endpoint of this study is safety. So the primary endpoint is major bleeding. So we now have three studies, including Adam VT, that have been published in peer-reviewed journals. Um, and I want to kind of review those real quick now that the full results are published, because I've talked about the, uh, the interim results that were presented at ASH uh, in December of last year. Um, and I think I mentioned them again a few months ago, talking about the ASCO VTE guidelines. So we're going to review the, the real quick here, uh, the big studies we have. So the first one was the Adoxaban study, Hoske VTE cancer. Um, then we had the Select D study, that was Rivaroxaban, and now Adam VTE with Zapixaban. Uh, the Adoxaban study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, had over a thousand patients. The Rivaroxaban study was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology with a little over 400 patients. And then the Apixaban, this Adam VTE study was published uh, just online ahead of print a few days ago in the Journal of Thrombosis and Hematology with just under 300 patients in it. So it's the smallest study. And the reason it's the smallest study is the primary endpoint is major bleeding. Uh, so there was a much smaller sample size calculation uh, or number of patients needed uh, for their primary endpoint looking at bleeding. Now, when this abstract was presented at ASH, the major bleeding rate uh, was 0% for Apixaban and 2.6 for Daltaparin. In this publication, the major bleeding rate is now 6% with Daltaparin, so almost twice as much as what it was a year ago or in, in December. Still 0% with Daltaparin, zero major bleeds, or 0% with Apixaban, I should say. My misstep. So just since I'm fumbling my words here, 6% major bleeding with Daltaparin, 0% with Apixaban. Um, obviously, that's good, right? Um, now, at the original publication, uh, the rate of recurrent VTE was 3.4% with Apixaban versus 14.1%. That was statistically significant. Now, as more patients have been added to the study, the recurrent VTE rate has dropped to 0.7% with a PIXPAN. That's one single patient had recurrent VTE with a PIXPAN. And 6.3% with Daltaparin. So the VT, recurrent VTE rate dropped with Daltaparin as more patients were accrued. So you have a 0.7% recurrent VTE rate with a PIXPAN compared to 6.3% with Daltaparin one and nine patients respectively with a recurrent VTE. I don't think we can take a whole lot away from an efficacy standpoint from this study. I would, I would be very hesitant to say a Pixban is better than Daltaparin, uh, but I do feel confident saying a Pixban is as good as a low molecular weight heparin. That's also in line with what we saw with a Doxban and Rivaroxban. Again, this study wasn't powered to detect um, recurrent VTE rates. It wasn't powered for efficacy. Small number of patients, only 10 recurrent VTEs. Uh, must be a pretty uh, healthy patient population with regard to cancer-associated uh, VTE. 
so I've talked a little bit about the relative size of these studies and where they were published. Uh, now, I think one thing that's important in interpreting the bleeding rates are the patients in these studies. So in the ADOCSPAN study, 1,000 plus patients, 22%, 22.2% of those patients had a GI malignancy in the DOAG group. In the RIVEROXPAN study, it was 32%. In the APICSPAN study, 17%. So lowest incidence of GI malignancies, and that's important because we've seen from Hosuke VTE cancer and SELECT-D that the rates of bleeding were higher in the DOAG arms in people with active GI, gastrointestinal and genitourinary malignancies. So this would be like colon cancer, uh, esophageal cancer, gastroesophageal junction cancer. Um, um, I'll leave it at that. So the major bleeding rates for these studies um, 6.9% for adoxaban, 6% with rivaroxaban, and now 0% for apixaban. But again, the apixaban group had the lowest uh, number of patients with GI malignancies. If you look at clinically relevant non-major bleeding, 12.3% with adoxaban, 13% with rivaroxaban, pretty similar, 6.2% with apixaban. But again, you have 10 to almost 15% fewer patients uh, with those GI malignancies in the apixaban study. So, while apixaban, the data, if you just read the abstract, looks great compared to these other adoxaban and rivaroxaban studies, I think when you look at the whole body of evidence, the takeaway point is still the same, is that uh, adoxaban, rivaroxaban, apixaban are, are likely just as good as a low molecular weight heparin. Of course, it's important because we know that warfarin is inferior to low molecular weight heparin with regards to preventing recurrent VTE events in patients with cancer-associated VTE. Uh, efficacy appears to be similar, um, but I, I, I don't necessarily uh, want to buy into all, um, you know, that maybe a PICS band is safer uh, in these patients just because of these bleeding rates when we don't have maybe a patient population indicative of the general patient population with regards to gastrointestinal cancers. Um, so that's Adam VTE and, uh, and my thoughts on that. Uh, so I would not expect, say, the ASCO or NCCN guidelines to change because of this study per se. There is a larger study called uh, Caravaggio, which maybe that's how you say it, maybe not, but it's led by an Italian group, and that is an apixaban study compared to daltaparin uh, with the primary endpoint of efficacy, and they plan to enroll uh, more than 1,000 patients. So this should give us a lot more evidence on the efficacy of a PIXBAN compared to a low molecular heparin for cancer-associated VTE. The study is supposed to end, was supposed to end in June of 2019. So I would guess, if I were a betting man, I might wager that the final results will be presented at ASH uh, this, uh, the end of this year in, in 2019. So hopefully we will see that. Okay, the next paper I want to talk about, uh, hat tip to, uh, to my wife for sending this to me, is uh, published online uh, October 3rd of 2019 in Blood. And this is Hypertension and Incident Cardiovascular Events Following a Brutinib Initiation. And this is uh, from uh, the James uh, Cancer Center at, uh, at an Ohio State University in Columbus. Uh, the first three, author, first three authors on this paper are PharmDs, Tyler Dickerson, Tracy uh, Wigzer or Wizer and Allison Waller. So shout out to those those fine pharmacists publishing their results. So this is uh, how they did this study. They looked at 562 consecutive uh, Brutinib patients uh, at the James from uh, 2006 all the way to or sorry 2006 all the way to 2000. 
and 16. And they had a median follow-up about 30 months for these patients and an interquartile range of eight months to 48 months. So a lot of these folks, you know, a sizable number had been on a brutinib for, for, uh, for two to four years, the vast majority. So long-term follow-up, which is great to have this long-term follow-up data. That's one of the strengths. Of course, retrospective study, so a little weakness there. So they're really looking at people on a brutinib for a long time, how many of them developed hypertension, adverse cardiovascular events, as well as what antihypertensives were they on and were started, and did that have any influence on cardiovascular outcomes, for at least what they could see. So this is how they uh, defined their, their study outcomes. So incident, or new hypertension, was defined as a systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 130 milligrams of mercury, I'll just say 130, uh, at two separate occasions within three months. So this grade one hypertension of 130 compared to 140 is relatively new. Uh, now in my experience, patients coming into the cancer clinic um, very often their blood pressure runs higher than it would be at home because they're at the cancer center and they're there seeing, are we having a, are we getting our scan results back? Is the blood work good? So there's some anxiety beyond just white coat hypertension, I would guess, for patients coming to the cancer clinic. So that is the bar. Now, 130 systolic blood pressure is new hypertension. Uh, they also looked at worsening hypertension. So people with baseline hypertension if their hypertension got worse on a brutinib, they measured that. And the definition for worsened hypertension was an increase from say a grade one to grade two hypertension based on the common terminology criteria for adverse events, CTCAE. Google that, CTCAE PDF, you'll get that. And then baseline hypertension, patients were defined as having baseline hypertension if they met one of these two criteria. One, systolic blood pressure above 130 on two separate occasions within three months, the same definition to get diagnosed with hypertension, or a history of hypertension and a patient on uh, antihypertensive. You probably have all seen that patient uh, chart at some point. This patient has a history of hypertension, but they're not on anything for hypertension, and they don't have hypertension currently. So not those patients' history of hypertension, and they're on at least one antihypertensive. What do these patients look like? Now, this is uh, an, a, you know, an NCI-designated institution. It's a major cancer center in America. 90% of the patients were white, Caucasian. 75% had, well, 73, I think, but about 75% had CLL. And about two-thirds were overweight or obese, which is kind of what I would guess for a, for a central Ohio-based study. Now, less than 5% of the patients were current smokers. And I tell you, if you did that study in Northeast Tennessee, the, it's not gonna be less than 5% current smokers, probably be 10 to 20%, which is what you see uh, in this state. 78%, um, 78.3% of patients on a brutinib, median follow-up two and a half years, 78% had new or worsened hypertension, which is a pretty big number. That's, that's four out of five had new or, or higher blood pressure. Um, now, if you did not have baseline hypertension, the rate of developing hypertension was 71.6%. If you did have a hypertension, the rate of worsened hypertension was 82.4%. So a little bit uh, worse as far as your, your blood pressure if you had hypertension at baseline, which kind of makes sense. Now, they did a univariate then multivariate analysis to find, to find risk factors for new or worsened hypertension. So having CLL compared to a non-CLL malignancy was a risk factor, but again, you know, 70 plus percent of the patients had CLL in the study. If you are on a CYP3-4 inhibitor, uh, that was a risk factor for worsened or new hypertension. Hazard ratio of 1.8. Um, now, 
that suggests since ibrutinib is a 3,4 substrate, that being on a 3,4 inhibitor would lead to higher ibrutinib levels. Maybe this is a concentration-dependent toxicity. That may very well be. There's a slight argument against that in the data in that there was no difference in worsened or new hypertension based on a brutinib dose. So it didn't appear to be a dose-dependent effect, but maybe if you're on a potent 3 or 4 inhibitor, it would vastly overcome the concentration if you were still on one as well. So, for example, if you're on, say, a moderate 3 or 4 inhibitor that's going to double the exposure of a brutinib, you know, 480 is going to go up to almost 1,000. That's going to be a much higher concentration than you would expect from, say, 560 milligrams in somebody with mantle cell lymphoma. So drug interactions do appear to perhaps increase the risk of hypertension in patients on a brutinib. First known data that I have read about that, so I think that's notable. And then um, the higher your baseline systolic blood pressure, obviously the higher risk you have. If your baseline systolic is 120, you're more likely to get to 130 than if your baseline systolic is 105, for example. So th that makes sense. Uh, as far as antihypertensive treatment, so again, seven, let's say 80% had new or worsened hypertension. 40%, so half of that number, had a new hypertension drug. So either initiation of antihypertensive therapy or an increase in the number of antihypertensive drugs. So again, about 80% had new or worsened hypertension. About half that number uh, had a new drug or had a drug added for hypertension. 18% um, uh, needed three plus antihypertensives, which would meet the definition for resistant hypertension, according to the authors. Uh, drugs used, drugs added, 22% of the time, diuretics, presumably thiazide or thiazide types, 18% an ACE or an ARB or, or an angiotensin blocker of some kind. Uh, beta blockers next at 15.4%, and then calcium channel blockers 12.4%. I'm guessing amlodipine and not DILT or verapamil, both of those are moderate 3-4 inhibitors. Now, if you look at the, um, another endpoint was, uh, was MACE, M-A-C-E, which is Major Adverse Cardiovascular Events, and that includes arrhythmia, myocardial infarction, stroke, heart failure, or cardiovascular-related death. So there were 16.5 MACE, MACEs, or, or Major uh, Cardiovascular Events, 16.5%. 19.1% was the incidence in those patients who had new hypertension or worsened hypertension. Uh, the number of people that had a major adverse cardiovascular event was, was half that number if you did not have new hypertension. So 19.1% compared to 18.2% with those with stable hypertension or no hypertension. That was a p-value of 0.03. Now those MACE events, it's kind of like saying event, event, but the MACEs, the most common was AFib. 13% of patients had atrial fibrillation, 3.7% heart failure, then 2.1% stroke, 1.4% MI, and 1.1% ventricular arrhythmia or sudden cardiac death. Ooh, sudden cardiac death, kind of scary. So 16.5% major adverse cardiovascular event, almost all of those 13 plus percent were atrial fibrillation. Now here's kind of the big takeaway from the study beyond hypertension is really common uh, in patients doing this. And in fact, they even looked at the time to half the people, 50% getting hypertension, it's less than six months. And there's beautiful curves, there's a plateau reached about six months. So people, this happens pretty quickly, it's pretty reliable when people do have this increase in blood pressure. But the takeaway was for those people who had new or worsened hypertension, antihypertensive therapy was associated with a decreased risk of major adverse cardiovascular events. Now again, those events were mostly AFib. So if you read between the lines, what this suggests is that uh, treatment of this hypertension that people have with a brutinib can decrease um, 
the development of arrhythmias, atrial fibrillation. Uh, and, you know, from a, maybe a cardiovascular pathophysiology standpoint, that makes sense. Another reason that that's important besides, obviously, you would guess better quality of life for patients is that might, by preventing atrial fibrillation, we might prevent these people from requiring anticoagulation. And of course, ibrutinib does have, as the most common side effect, hemorrhage slash easy bruising and bleeding. So I think that, that it would be, uh, it would behoove all of us in the Oncopharm community to, to treat these folks with their hypertension aggressively so that we can prevent development of AFib, prevent development of bleeds because they're on a brutinib and an anticoagulant. And again, I'm connecting a lot of dots there that maybe the evidence don't support, but you know, it's my show. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, the authors do point out the limitations of the study. It's a retrospective study. Um, you know, the rates of uh, hyper, of grade three or more hypertension are 38% in this study compared to 26% in some of the other studies. Maybe some of that is, you know, now we're using different endpoints or, or a different definition of, of hypertension with systolic of 130, whereas older data looked at systolic, of one, systolic blood pressure of 140 as being hypertension. Uh, but at the same time, this is probably a more real-world population uh, of these patients because um, they're, they're not necessarily all on clinical trials uh, as opposed to the publications of clinical trials. So that is what I have today for Oncopharm. Uh, thank you for listening. Again, I uh, would love to see uh, five-star ratings and good reviews. Uh, contact me, tell you what you would like to hear more about. Uh, I had someone reach out to me on Insta, where you can find me at OncopharmPod, uh, asking to talk about carboplatin for uh, triple negative uh, breast cancer, which is certainly something I'll add to the list to talk about. It's a great suggestion. So, uh, again, reach out to me on Twitter as well, at PharmDeepNip, and the show is on Twitter at OncopharmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.